Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Orthopedic Surgery Podcast, a curated series of interviews and discussions highlighting the three shields of orthopedic surgery at Mayo Clinic, clinical practice, research, and education. Welcome back to the Mayo Clinic Orthopedic Surgery Podcast. I'm your host, John Barlow, and I'm really excited today to introduce Joaquin sanchez Sotelo to talk about one of my favorite topics. Joaquin uh, did his training at in Spain and then did a shoulder and elbow and hip and knee fellowship here at Mayo Clinic and has been uh, here ever since. He's the division chair of shoulder and elbow surgery and a huge mentor of mine. We're really excited to have him come and talk about rotator cuff tears today. Thanks for joining, Joaquin. Thank you, John. What a pleasure. There's very few topics in shoulder surgery that elicit more emotion than rotator cuff uh, tears and rotator cuff treatment. Obviously, um, we know that some rotator cuffs can tears can be asymptomatic and some are symptomatic. Talk to us about your beliefs or feelings or ideas about what is the natural history of rotator cuff tears in, in human beings? Yeah, that's such a difficult question to answer, John, because the information out there is contradictory. So on one hand, we know that rotator cuffers essentially are the way by which most shoulders get older. So as we all age, people get a rotator cuffter. And there is studies that show that patients that are or individuals that are over 60 will have a cuffter uh, if you did an image study 50% of the times to the point that some people think that we shouldn't call them rotator cuff tears, but rotator cuff wears, because it's basically getting worn by use. However, at the same time, rotator cuff tears are the number one reason for shoulder disability worldwide. So there's no question that they are asymptomatic, commonly they are symptomatic as well. So I think what's important as we talk about rotator cuff tears is to completely distinguish the acute traumatic tear of a healthy cuff which is uncommon but happens, versus the chronic wear pattern that many times is asymptomatic or can respond to conservative treatment. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And obviously making those decisions in, in clinic with patients is important. One of the, the things that I think has continued to be divergent, and I don't know if I've dug deep with you on your thinkings about thinking about this, what are your thoughts about the role of the acromion in rotator cuff tears? Do you believe it's an extrinsic uh, squeezing or impingement of the rotator cuff or intrinsic delamination leading to rotator cuff tears. I'm gonna hold you down on this one. My belief is that in most patients it's actually tendon fiber wear and not extrinsic impingement. That's what I believe today. I don't know very well why that spur forms, but it does in some patients. And I think the classic teaching in the nearest times was that that bone spur grew first and then it was eroding the rotator cuff and maybe what happened was that as the calf became imbalanced the humeral head translated anterosuperiorly loads the CA ligament and now you get an encesophyte that's what I think happens it's another whole different question to discuss the role of acromioplasty in rotator calf repair I must confess that I do acromioplasty in about 60% of my calves because even if it was a secondary phenomenon, having more space, I think, helps with surgery oftentimes. And there is this CD belief that the hematoma that may drip from the acromion may have PRP made by nature. 
But I had the occasion to have a debate about this, that is probably in general orthopedics, and I couldn't find any evidence to support an acromioplasty in the setting of calf repair. And then a whole other topic is the lateral acromioplasty, you believe in the critical shoulder angle of Dr. Gerber. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think, um, uh, interestingly, we've come, I, I, I feel the same. So I think there's increasingly compelling data that, that it's a tension and thesophyte uh, from the CA ligament. So it's probably a cuff-driven process, but um, I, it's always a fun debate. So I hope that one can continue to live on among shoulder surgeons about uh, whether it's the chicken or the egg. Let's move on to uh, what you mentioned before, acute rotator cuff tears. I think this is one where we've got a little bit more clarity. Um, what are your indications for, let's say somebody comes in, they have, a, have shoulder pain. What's your indication for adding axial imaging or an MRI scan or ultrasound, if that's what you prefer? And then what's your role for non-surgical management of acute rotator cuff tears, if any? So in a patient that just had shoulder trauma, the most important thing is the physical examination. So a patient had a dislocation or a major injury to the shoulder and he or she comes to the office and tells you, I can barely move my shoulder, you must check for the strength. And there are ways to check for the strength properly, even if a patient just had an injury and is hurting. So for me, the indication for axial image, which I favor MRI, is if I feel that there is too much weakness. The challenge, John, is that many times these patients will be seen by emergency room physicians or primary care providers that didn't have the luxury of training well in orthopedics and it's no one's fault. But if you are not very tuned into testing the strength, you're going to miss out on a few acute rotator cuff tears. To your second question, the vast majority of acute tears, I recommend surgery because I believe that if you get to that cuff tear early on, you can restore normal function in about 95 or 98% of the patients. The exception would be the true acute on chronic in a very frail patient. So if a patient had a well-compensated chronic tear, the patient is 75 or 80, frail, and then completes the tear, I may actually wait, see if I can rehab the deltoid, and if that doesn't work, I may go to reverse arthroplasty. Yeah, I'm similar. And uh, for you, I, I think I've gotten, uh, we've got some data, let's say, out of WashU that talks about failure rates of massive rotator cuff repairs in terms of retear, but at the same time, the clinical outcomes look pretty good, even from, from those series. Do you have an age cutoff? Because a lot of these acute tears, especially in the older patients, are, are really big. Do you have an age cutoff over which you, you won't do it? Or is it more just how the rotator cuff looks? And, um, and if, it looks, if it looks like it's a fixable and healable tendon? Yeah, so again, just to clarify, this is the acute traumatic tear. Mm -hmm. So if I have an acute traumatic tear in a patient that is 75 or 78, I will still offer this patient a calf repair. There is also very good data from your fellowship site, you know, Jefferson, that shows that those patients actually do well. For me, the key is to look at fatty infiltration. So if I look at the MRI of a 78-year-old patient with a, an acute calf tear and they have zero fatty infiltration, I'm going to go for it. That's great, and I'm the same. And I think um, I think these the older patients can recover really nicely. And I think a lot of times uh, they perform they outperform what you'd get with a reverse if you went straight to that or otherwise. So uh, I don't think there's any reason to to throw that out. Let's move on to something a little bit more nuanced. Let's say a lot more nuanced: the chronic rotator cuff tears. So somebody shows up with six weeks of shoulder pain in your office. Um, do you jump straight to MRI scan? Do you try non-surgical management? 
uh, for the chronic rotator cuff tears? How do you make your decisions? Let's say somebody comes in, they've got an x-ray, uh, but no MRI. Um, would you try physical therapy without an MRI on those patients with a chronic tear? So, um, you know, my practice is a little biased because by the time I see patients, they typically come with an MRI or they have had pain for a year or two or three. But if I were to see a patient that comes to see me for the first time ever after six to eight weeks of shoulder pain, I would base it all on a strength testing. So if a patient has substantial weakness, I would prefer to get an MRI. The only reason not to get the MRI, I think, is cost because it is expensive. But I think it provides so much information about so many things, you know, that I, I do tend to get an MRI. That doesn't mean I'm going to recommend surgery in that patient. It just means that I want to know the extent of their cath disease to counsel them about the future. That's great. And let's say, so now you've uh, got the MRI scan. We've got a full thickness rotator cuff tear. It's a two centimeter uh, subscapularis tear, one or a supraspinatus tear, one centimeter supraspinatus tear. Does the age of the patient matter or do all patients need to fail formal physical therapy? What's your algorithm moving forward? Let's say they had shoulder pain and they've got a one centimeter cuff tear. Do they, do they all get formal physical therapy and an injection or how do you make decisions there? Yeah, I think the vast majority of those patients I will treat with physical therapy, hopefully without an injection if I can help you. That would be what I would do. The exception would be the ultra young patient, like someone that is 35 to 40 and has a supratear where the anterior cable is off. Because we have data that shows that fat infiltration progresses very rapidly when the anterior cable is off. So one centimeter tear with the cable off in a patient that is 40, I'm going to recommend surgery. Most patients I see are going to be more 55 to 70. And I would almost always treat those patients conservatively. And conservative for me means mostly physical therapy. Yeah, I think the same. And obviously our practice is a little bit different uh, geographically, but uh, if you have the opportunity to get patients plugged in with physical therapy, even before an MRI, it works great. But oftentimes you can give some reassurance in the moon study certainly was very reassuring about non-surgical management of full thickness rotator cuff tears. Uh, for the residents out there who uh, maybe have thought less or more about rotator cuff tears and location, can you describe the cable and crescent uh, idea and how you differentiate those. And uh, you talked about the anterior superior tears that involve the cable. Can you talk about that versus the crescent and that uh, anatomical relationship? Yeah, I think if you uh, have the opportunity as a resident to do some cadaver dissection or if you visit an operating room where there is a lot of shoulder arthroscopy going on, in some shoulders it's very evident. I'm talking about the normal shoulder where there is this very thick band of collagen fibers that go from the front to the back of the top of the tuberosity. And that's what we call the cable. And that probably transmits the majority of the force of the supraspinatus and the posterior infraspinatus to the tuberosity. So when the anterior part of that cable is detached, we're talking about that, those tears are risky because they seem to lead to more fatty infiltration. My other observation, John, has been that patients that have this lesion in the corner of the joint where there is the convergence of the anterior supra, superior subscapularis, and biceps, they don't tend to do well without surgery. So those are the patients that keep coming back to me where they have the upper subscap, the anterior supra, and the biceps tendon is subluxing. That becomes pretty painful. Yeah, I'm totally with you. And I think if you, uh, one of the things transitioning from supraspinatus, which I think is really important up to subscapularis, I think 
one of the critical determinants of if somebody's going to get better with physical therapy is if the subscapularis is intact. And I think uh, Steve Burkhart, who just talked a lot about the cable and crescent, formerly Mayo trained uh, surgeon who recently retired, but um, they talk about the subscap and infraspinatus and the force couples. If you've got that intact to strengthen, uh, then I think uh, patients can do substantially better. But once that subscapularis gets involved, especially the upper border, the tendinous portion, I think you can see pretty rapid uh, loss of range of motion and poor outcomes with physical therapy. Can you talk about uh, your changes recently? I know we've talked a little bit about the, your interest in the subscapularis and you, how critically you're assessing it arthroscopically. Yeah, that's been one of the lessons I have learned in my practice. So when I trained, as you know, John, uh, this is again years ago, most of the rotator cuff surgery done at Mayo Clinic was open. And as you and I know, the subscapularis tendon starts to tear on the articular side. So if you're looking from the surface, you will miss it. And I think I have missed probably a lot of extensions into the subscapularis when I was doing open surgery. The minute you do arthroscopic surgery and you look for it, you find it very, very often. And what's surprising to me is that currently, and maybe I'm overdoing it, but I would estimate that 80% of my rotator cuff repairs involve the subscapularis, which was not the case 10 years ago when I was doing more open surgery. So the key is to look for it, which is not easy. I know that you love the 70 degree scope, which is a great tool. I like to place the arm in a spider and then flex the shoulder, place it in internal rotation and do a posterior pull test. And doing that, you can almost always see if the footprint of the laser is exposed. That's really good. And I think I've, I think that's dramatically changed for all of us. Steve Burkhart led the, led the front on a lot of those diagnostic tests. And I think it's, um, uh, I, I find, myself rarely um, rarely disappointed that I assessed the subscapularis and that I repaired it. So the old concern was that they'd get too stiff if you fix the upper subscapularis. And I just uh, haven't seen that in my practice. Can you talk a little bit about key factors for you in getting this operation, operation right, critical steps? Yeah, so I think it's important to first set the indication right. So don't go to the operating room for a patient where you know the calf is just not going to heal. So identify what we would call the functionally irreparable calf tear. Provided you're convinced that this tear is fixable, there is enough muscle bulk, there is no fat infiltration, the tendon length is adequate. I think it's very important to be methodical in your surgery. So um, keys for that include adequate patient positioning. You have to be a master of uh, management of the fluids that go through your pump. And that becomes a problem because sometimes we rely too much on our nursing personnel or the reps of the company. And you as a surgeon have to have at least some understanding of when to increase the pressure, when to decrease it, what's the importance of flow and so on. Um, spend enough time getting ready for the operation. What I mean by that is that when we do arthroscopic shoulder surgery, all we wanna do is place the anchors and pass the switches. And that's very easy to do when the bursa is all out. It's extremely difficult if you do a poor job with your bursal release. So for me, uh, by the time I get to fix the calf, you can look at the shoulder up and down and you can see everything. I think that's something important. It's like the arthroscopic exposure of the rotator calf. And then make sure that you use enough points of fixation. I have seen failures, mostly because people do uh, not great repair with maybe one or two anchors where you need three or four or five. Yeah, that's perfect. And um, and I think arthroscopic rotator cuff repair, obviously, I, I really like to do the uh, arthroscopic techniques, but I think 
the visualization you can get of the subscapularis is, is clearly outstanding, but also big retracted rotator cuff tears. I think it's much easier for me now. I didn't do tons of open rotator cuff repair, but it's really much easier for me to really mobilize that tendon well arthroscopically. And I can see uh, all the way around it on both sides. So uh, really, really good insight. One more advice, John, is this is an operation that I think can be difficult and mostly time consuming. So other operations in my practice have more predictable surgical time. A calf repair, sometimes I cannot tell if it's going to be done in an hour or in three. So this is an operation where you have to leave the watch outside of the operating room, whatever time it takes. Sometimes the blood pressure is high, you can't see. Sometimes the shaver doesn't work. So you have to be patient, don't give up. Some days it's like playing golf. Some days it's like a home run. In 45 minutes, you have 50 anchors in the shoulder. Sometimes it's very frustrating just to fix the subscapularis, you just cannot see. So that's important. Don't go to the OR in a rush for rotator cuff repair surgery. It's so true. And it's uh, definitely for all orthopedic surgeons. I don't think patience is one of our, our uh, leading virtues. but um, that's And I think that was one of the classic teaching points is some people used to think the clock starts and you only have an hour to get everything done. You got to kind of rush through it. And I think more and more people are feeling more confident about taking their time, getting things right. It may get a little bit more swollen, but it usually stabilizes a little bit and you can get you can get the job done. I've gone just a little bit long uh, today, but I want to go rapid fire with you. So tell me 15 seconds, arthroscopic versus open rotator cuff repair 2021. Is there still a role for open rotator cuff repair? Yes, but it's very, very, very limited. I think uh, it would be for the very intimidating full thickness subscapularis tear if someone is not experienced. I think it's better to do it or for some tears at the muscle tendon junction where anchors are not the best way to fix them. I think it's important to leave the operating room satisfied. So there is no pride to be lost because you open the shoulder. But I think today we have the tools and the learning expertise to do arthroscopic calf repair in the vast majority of the patients. No question. I'm I'm on the same page as you. I don't think it's it's certainly not wrong to do it, especially if it gets it uh, gets it done the right way. But um, with more skill, I think arthroscopic is really nice. All right, single row versus double row repair. Double row. Double row me too. <laughs> How about this? Um, SCR, supercapsular reconstruction, tendon transfer, balloon. Where are you well, now? I'll start with the balloon. I find it very, very intriguing. Very, very intriguing, but I need data. So I think that's a tool that when it comes to the market uh, in the near future is going to be used, potentially abused, and then we'll find what is the right spot. Going to SCR and tendon transfer, I think there are different operations for different patients. So for me, if I'm looking for restoration of strength in a standard rotation, it's a tendon transfer. Today, at Mayo, we would do a lower tapetius transfer. If a patient is mostly painful, has reasonable motion, and the strength is good because the delta is great, then I think an SCR can be a really good operation as well. Well, Joaquin, I could go for two hours talking about this stuff with you. We still, have, we still haven't talked about rehab. We haven't talked about PRP or stem cells, different constructs. So I look forward to having you back on, on uh, another podcast. I want to uh, update sort of, summarize what we talked about and leave you if you have any further uh, comments for people. But I think it's pretty clear that uh, the natural history of rotator cuff, um, rotator cuffs is that they tear over time. Chronic rotator cuff tears can likely be treated non-surgically, particularly smaller tears in older patients that don't involve the cable. Acute rotator cuff tears, I think we both agree, uh, demand careful assessment and likely early 
surgical repair. It sounds like the subscapularis is becoming increasingly central to our repair constructs and our evaluation of patients with rotator cuff tears and getting that repaired uh, anatomically and strongly seems to be uh, super important. And I think if we really look carefully in patients, carefully selected with good preoperative uh, non-surgical management, the rate of subscapularis tears is gonna be substantially higher than maybe what it was historically. And it sounds like it's a technical operation that requires a little bit of patience and a lot of practice as we go forward, but certainly something uh, with a well-done repair that we can expect really good outcomes. Anything else you wanted to add, Joaquin? Yeah, a couple of things. One is that I think this is a perfect field for artificial intelligence. So we have so much data that we could potentially collect, including demographics, physical examination findings, x-ray findings, and multiple MRI parameters. That it would be nice to have an algorithm in machine learning that would tell the patient, look, for you, you should have surgery. Look, for you, you shouldn't. I mean, that would be critical. So I'm hoping that AI will make a major impact in rotator cuff decision making. And the second is someone can come up with a product to inject in the shoulder and dissolve the bursa to do the operation easier, that patient will get the, the, the Nobel Prize because that would be wonderful, right? To go to the OR and get something, the bursa is gone. So I hope that will happen one day. That's amazing. Well, uh, Joaquin, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, John. Have a good day. Uh,